Okay, my guest today is actually a really good friend of mine, Eric Conwell, who owns CVL Partners, or is it CVL Builders? No, Partners, you got it right. Got it right. Okay, cool. So um, I'm really excited for this episode, uh, even more than most, because we've been friends for a long time, and I think today I'm going to finally understand what it is that you do. So I'm looking to (laughs) peel back that onion. So um, let's get started today, just if you could. What is CVL Partners and what do you do? Yeah. So um, we, I would say, I've never been asked that directly. So I appreciate the. Be a good thought exercise. Um, So we have some different small business lines that, um, and it's usually in partnerships with either vendors or investors. Um, It's all real estate related. Uh Uh-huh. And, uh, I think that the best way to, to put it, so it's CVL, it's kind of a, it's not a great name. Um, it's that the businesses have some element of craft value and labor, which Mm -hmm. is just hard work. It's literally the Latin word for hard work. I didn't know it was a Latin word. Um, that was English word. And, and it incidentally is kind of like this startup be like the word civil without the eyes, which is what I always have to do when I'm telling anyone on the phone. Mm-hmm. Um, cause they're the worst letters for spelling over the phone. Um, each one sounds like a different letter. Um, but the, um, got started. So my background is in, uh, with real estate hedge funds. I really wanted to work in investment management and was, getting out of school just before the crash and really difficult time to get onto wall street and had ultimately got a few offers, but went with this small, smaller boutique hedge fund that was the next Goldman Sachs guys that worked in the real estate and mortgage debt space. And so they had, they were the, they were the team actually that built the first mortgage backed security at Goldman Sachs, which was really the shop that, made mortgage-backed securities explode in the 80s. Mm-hmm. So Lou Ranieri was preaching the gospel to everybody. And once Goldman picked it up, it was a, it became a mainstream product. Okay. So cool spot to watch everything implode. And, <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, because zero. no one knew what was going on. It was like cool to watch all of these hearings because we always had CNBC up and stuff. And my bosses were like, oh, that's completely wrong. They have no idea what they're talking about. Um, but kind of ended up getting focused on distressed properties all over the country Mm -hmm. because it was just, that's what there was. Yeah. There's a lot of them too. Yeah. So we were a a value oriented hedge fund and looking for um, just kind of one. In fact, I think it was like Martha Coakley or somebody in a meeting said to us that we were kind of the cleanup crew for the housing crisis. And so that's a good way to look at it. Problem stuff and banks aren't good at, banks are in the business of relending other people's dollars, mm-hmm. ideally the feds. Um, they're not good at housing or fixing housing issues. So it was a cool, what I ended up really gravitating towards was this, because usually there were still borrowers in these properties that we would, we would own. Mm-hmm. And so there's a human element and having to scale it. Cause we were usually, it was somewhere between, um, you know, with the smallest, we'd have like a, 25 or 50 property pool of loans, um, up to, you know, 
10,000. Wow. So everyone, one of the things that was great is that the fund was really, really all about getting, you know, boots on the ground. And so I was cutting my teeth, driving to places you've never heard of. And and the fund, the fund would purchase the homes and add those to a, to a group that essentially people would invest in that group of owned yeah. properties. So, yeah, that, there, and there's people in the houses some of the times. Yeah. Yeah. So is, was that where you were driving to is to like have human interaction with the people inside the. Usually the it's a good question. Sometimes. Yes. Usually it was just to, to lay eyes on the property mm. and to actually see what it was really like. Um, because these kinds of things, properties, they're, they're on dirt. You can't just abstract them to a spreadsheet. Yeah. That was a lot of times, cause we usually would have capital partners from like, you know, Blackstone or Blackrock or, you know, major New York money groups, um, would usually be some sort of senior or junior capital in, in whatever investments we were doing. Mm-hmm. And most of those guys that were kind of my counterparts in New York wouldn't understand that it was, it was just a, a row on Excel to them. And they were trying to just bucket rows of, of, you know, in Excel together and make decisions and simplify, which is good. It was their job. Yeah. They wanted to understand in, in three minutes, whether or not yeah. this is something they want to be involved in. And it was very difficult because you being on the ground, you realized it doesn't matter that it's a model match, three houses down, that pile of weeds is that woman's garden. Like that's her. And like all of those chips are like stories of her kids and, and she's emotionally invested. And so for me, the, some of the ahas were that homes are consumer product goods. Mm-hmm. They're not like assets, like they're told we are. And for most people, like the majority of people, um, and the goal with the fund and then the goal with stuff that we started was, you know, if someone, if a housing situation isn't going to work out for somebody, Mm -hmm. because a lot of times they, they might have the willingness, but not the capacity. They might have the capacity, but not really the willingness there for some reason. And so it's creating this really fair and, and, um, useful vision of their next housing situation. So in a way you're, you're coming across people that for one reason or another, they can't maintain the home they're in and yeah. rather, rather than, but tell me if I'm hearing it right. Cause I yeah. think, I, I think we've talked about this a little bit before. So rather, rather than kicking them to the curb, so to the speak, so to speak, you tell them, look, there's an end in sight and we want to help you go to your next place. And then is do you like essentially coach that person on how to, live within their means or whether the means are yeah. money or the means are discipline, how to find the next place and get to it. Yeah. On a, on a, on a scale, that's totally right. On a scale level, we're trying to connect them to debt counselors because we can't do that at scale. Right. Um, but a lot of it was informed by um, this guy, Albert Bandura at Stanford, who um, pioneered the, I think, he, and I could be getting this totally wrong, but um Nobody's really checking. Go ahead. Pioneered this uh, this concept of self-efficacy where he found, and I think, and again, I'm, I might have this wrong, but he was working with like drug addicted uh, clients. And I think he was a psychologist. Um, again, all the facts are disputable, but <laughs> found that um, 
that a lot of these drug addicted people couldn't actually see themselves not having a life with drugs in them. Mm -hmm. Like they just literally, it was in their mind, they were going to live until they, they would die and they'd still have drugs in their life. Well, yeah. I mean, even, even if you look at even people with like people that smoke cigarettes or, or drink alcohol, there's a, there's a part of your personality you define with the habits that you have, right? Yeah. It's uh, I'm just reading James Clear's book, Atomic Habits, which is great so far. And he talks about habits. Yeah. Atomic habits. Um, and he talks about how you can't sustain, um, activities and behaviors that contradict your self belief. Mm -hmm. And so you might, you know, you might abate your smoking for a little while, but if you believe that you're a smoker, that's trying to quit as opposed to like, I'm not a smoker. Right, right, right. I was, but that's not my identity. Um, that it matters, that it really it makes a difference. And, and that's backed up in Albert Bandura, I think, definitely found it. And he found he actually had to tell stories. Um, so he couldn't say, hey, hey, you know, Adam, stop smoking or stop doing drugs. Um, he had to say, hey, Adam, I have this friend named Smadam. Not you at all, um, but really good. Look-alike. Really good looking, strong. And uh, he was really addicted to drugs and, and he felt the same thing. He couldn't imagine a life without it. And then he actually made some decisions to start not doing it. And his life is so much better now. And he would just fictionalize sometimes a story and people would all of a sudden start believing it and, and, and abstracting it back to themselves. Is it one of those projecting the you you want to be and then chasing A little it? bit, but having like a guide so that you have the benefit of being able to uh, sust- suspend disbelief. Mm-hmm. You know, like we so could all can- probably imagine most movies, but they wouldn't nearly be as, as satisfying as going and watching, you know, Bradley Cooper do it. Well, it makes sense too, because uh, all of us to, to a degree, we, we are our identity. At least we identify with the current identity and to change yeah. it. To change it is difficult because it means you have to reflect and think about the things about yourself that are not good, that you don't yeah. like, and you have to face that. And in yeah. order to change it, you got to face it. You have to look right at it. And maybe his method, uh, you're still going to have to face it, but maybe it helps them get the first step by saying, oh, it's not me. It's Smadam. Smadam has this yeah. problem, but I'm a lot like Smadam. So if he can do yeah. it, then I can probably take that step. 100%. It was, it was just that... Um, that sort of somehow externalizing it and having somebody else tell you you're okay. And, and I think, and I, it's been a while since I've read the actual papers, but I think at some point the participants even knew that it wasn't true and it was still effective. Hmm. Um, it was like, we're so trained to believe stories. Yeah. Well, and the mind is very powerful and we, the mind can be easily tricked or just um, motivated by stories. Yeah. Kind of like, kind of like placebo effect. It's a thing. Totally. It's a thing because the mind is incredibly like stronger than we understand. It yeah, can give you a, a sugar pill and it can cure your arthritis, you know, for a certain amount of people. That's bananas. Yeah. Well, that means the brain can cure things. It's a story. Like it really is just, Hey, we're going to do a little play and then I'm going to help you believe the story. Here's a sugar pill. That's part of the play. Right. And the, it's kind of, my wife has a line that I really like. Um, you know, when something is bioavailable, where it's like you can take something like you could take a supplement, but if it's, if it's not the right chirality or something like that, you could have it in your body and your body could need it. But if it's not in the right form, 
then it's not bioavailable to right. you, so it leaves. Um, like shitty vitamins. Yeah, exactly, like shitty vitamins. And so the line Arisa says is that story makes truth bioavailable, where it's like, oh, yeah. I, I like I, that. Give me a story, and all of a sudden it, it enables me to uptake it. And so, story makes truth bioavailable. Yeah, I've, I write down a lot of the stuff she says. That's, that's a but, really interesting one. Um, anyways, to bring it back to, um, to what we were doing and what we've done, um, and that was one part of it because it's, initially it's, it's a weird process. Like if you, if you tell a story in one way, I mean, if you have a certain somebody writing a paper, it's like, oh man, this guy was kicking people out of their homes. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a, that's a weird business to be in. Right. Um, now, a lot of times the homes are already vacant. Um, I would say that, and yeah, it, it was, it was a variety of things. Sometimes the people could, could get back and start making payments, which was fantastic. Well, knowing uh, you like I do, you're not, you're not a transactional person. You're not going to view a home as too bad. Get out. That's you just, I don't think, yeah. I don't think you could have the job if your job was too bad. Get out slumlord. Just, yeah, you know. it couldn't, I've had, you know, to be clear, I've had really like difficult. I've, I've had, um, I, I had this huge portfolio in uh, Massachusetts, actually. It was one of the first things that got me to Massachusetts. And uh, we had a few uh, slumlords who were um, our borrowers. Mm-hmm. And it was really weird and difficult to experience it because, and it wasn't like a, like a oh, this person is kind of a quote-unquote slumlord. It was like we had their renters coming and saying, like slipping us notes. Oh, wow. You know, to call the police and things like that. It was like, um, so it was weird because I well, thought- that adds that I, another whole element to your business, right? I mean, now it's, you're getting oh, involved yeah. with like casework. No, it's bizarre. It's really, really, I, that was one of the fun parts is that you you get all types. Um, I had a, a borrower who was able to get back and, and start paying again. And I probably shouldn't say this because it might be a public thing, but um, her name was Rosemary Gilcrest sweetest old lady um i think at some point she disclosed to me that she was trying to get from four packs of cigarettes a day to three packs Mm -hmm. um but not necessarily for health reasons she said for money reasons Uh. and she had found a way to get back to making her payments and she would call me she had somehow gotten through so usually you work through a mortgage servicer who has all the licensing and they handle all the communication with the borrowers um and it's different in every single state um, she had somehow gotten my number directly and every week would call me without fail. And it was like, and she had this very distinctive voice and she was a really sweet woman, but, and she would just want to talk. Um, <laughs> and she would usually ask me what her balance was again. It was usually unchanged from the week before. Um, but it was like the gamut of, of what you dealt with was just all over the place. Yeah. Um, and, and I did initially think that it was just a matter where and all politicians would want you to believe that, oh, these, you know, poor people and, you know, the big, bad capitalists have hurt their feelings, you know. And, and I discovered somewhat quickly, like, wow, there is almost no borrower in this pool that wasn't complicit in this process. Mm-hmm. And I, I called it the firm doubt approach where I couldn't just be nice. I found just being nice uh, made people just 
walk over you. Right, right. And I, we had all of these tools and, and we had built into our model. We had raised extra money so that we could give some to borrowers. And if you loved that, if you led that too fast, they just wanted, well, then just give me a hundred thousand dollars. You know, it was like, give me the money. You had to create these boundaries, which was interesting. And, um, and you had to have consequences and you had to stick to them. Um, but we found that at the end of the day, for me, I knew that this was something that had to happen. It wasn't sustainable for that person to be living in that property. Right. Uh, and not paying anything. There well, was the, lots the, of- the proof for that was already there because you're now involved. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. we already know that that's the final answer. And, it, yeah. and you made an interesting point about the the people you're coming across, and it's not the fairy tale that politicians would would lead you to believe. Where of course some of them are, right? Some of them, the, the few and far between, are probably nice people that just came across something. But most of them probably got themselves into a world of shit, which I think, it, yeah, it's interesting because most people never see that, and you you have to think about it to actually try to internalize the feelings that you might be having. Where you're getting involved in the end of a housing crisis with people who overbought and then maybe can't buy or they can't yeah. do they can't they can't make what they need to make happen for the house whereas like we always we come down really hard on police officers and we don't think about the fact that police officers spend 95% of their day being lied to by the worst people out there cuz that's yeah. who they interface with they're totally. not interfacing with uh, the nice old lady who wants to bake them cookies sure her too She's one yeah. out of every like 900 people they come across. And a lot of those people are thieves, drug addicts, uh, because those are the people that attract police attention, right? So if, yeah. you, if you spend your whole day with people trying to lie to you about the house that you now own, it's going gonna, it's gonna to create a jaded relationship. But yeah. I, think you, I think you've done a really good job from just from the outside of being friends with you where you're not jaded and angry and you're not, you're not, you're not pilfering the houses. You've got a plan. Yeah. It's, it's a difficult, it is, it's a great point. It's a really difficult thing because when you, you know, you discover that usually the narrative that someone brings to the conversation is not going to be the narrative. It's not going to be the narrative solution. And and how you go about um, guiding the story and also doing your best to create a, you know, a dignified, like it's a difficult situation. Yeah. Like, getting overextended is not like an impossible thing. I think it's a very normal thing. Yeah. It's very uh, easy it's, to have it happen. Yeah. And it's a very vulnerable thing um, to have happen. One of the things I thought was really interesting, there was this good article because in the eighties there was this dream of democratizing banking where everyone would be reduced to a number. And so you can't have bias on numbers. They're just a number. And, and this thought is if we can, the issue is if we can make everything completely fair, then, then we'll be able to lend and there will be, um, you know, that lack of bias will create more opportunity, which I think largely did, Mm -hmm. but some of the, unintended consequences because banking used to be super boring. I mean, you just, you know, your community bank was the one that lended to that community. Um, they would, you know, sell the Fannie Mae, but it was a pretty small portfolio that they had uh-huh. in all the servicing. And so you know, the, all the neighbors and it was this big community business. Um, well, as mergers and scale happened in the eighties and nineties, that didn't happen anymore. And so there was, 
the result was as everyone became a number trust there was just no trust right way. right no one had any story on anybody so you lose the fabric that it used to bring to the community yeah completely you, you there was it was gone and i think that's still one of those things when i step back and look at like housing and look at some of where we're at in 2020 now it's um and you know we always feel like we're kind of like at the end of history because we're at the most current part of our history right but we're we're actively writing what someone else will will be 150 years ago for somebody for sure and all of our issues will be like well duh why didn't you right and so i i kind of feel like where we're at and um is that we're starting to work on the problems of how do you deliver solutions at scale for a billion people? Like that's the, that's the problem we haven't figured out. Mm -hmm. And we're starting to use technologies enabling us to solve billion person problems. And I think, you know, I think we're at like 8 billion people and by 2050, we're going to be like 10 billion and they think it's going to stabilize around there. What but makes you think that? Solving billion person problems. It's always been like before the joint stock company, it was, you were solving, thousand person problems usually and then it for got most of our history you're solving 200 people problems yeah most of human exactly. history you're solving 200 people problems yeah and and 200 person problems are different than the billion person problems right but they, do they, they do involve that fabric that community that i'll give eric this hammer because i know he's going to give it back to me or i know that when i need an egg he'll give me one from his chickens you know there, there's yeah precisely uh, there's that's a 200 person that's, that's there. It's not there anymore. No. Like we, you know, it's an interesting, I, I heard this stat that I can't even quote, but the, the takeaway from it um, was that college educated people are much, much more likely in America to live over 50 miles away from a relative. Mm -hmm. And that um, we're much more likely to have, like it used to be that we said, I want to say it was in the seventies that we had four close friends and now we have on average one close friend mm. and 25% or 24%, I think it was of people as of like 2010 said that they have zero close friends. I believe it. Yeah. If you just, if you just peel back a layer and look at, almost almost all the families i know have two working people as the heads of the household which right away yeah. takes away half your life or more yeah. than half in today's day because people don't work 40 hours anymore they're you're i mean by the time from leaving in the morning to getting back at night you're talking about a 60 hour week for a normal regular job oh, Some, yeah. someone who's not even grinding right totally. so you're basically pulling one whole world out of a family where there used to be, I'm not saying good or bad. I'm just saying there's a difference yeah. where the mom's not there anymore, taking the kids to a friend's house, doing this, going to the yeah. park that that's not happening. So the kids are also growing up isolated and with video yeah. games and devices to a degree we've never seen. So maybe it'll be our evolution, right? Maybe that combined with some mental changes are going to trigger what's next for humanity. So I'm not saying I'm not going on a limb on good or bad, or we need to go back to family values, although not that they're bad, but it's a notable yeah. difference, right? I mean, it, it no longer exists. So yeah, yeah. I believe that we don't have friends anymore. I mean, I work to try and keep the relationships I have. And even that's difficult because, uh, you know, you want to get together, but, and I want to have my friends come over to the house and sit by the fire pit and talk, yeah. but that's not, that's not easy to do often because no, people it's are busy. Not easy. 
at all. And and the more you're in cities, the more it's a weird thing. It's like a, ooh, don't don't invite me over to your house. Like, right. I don't weirdo. No, let's we can meet at a bar and have a drink, maybe. And then we'll tweet um, about it. Yeah, it and it's weird because it's it's not like this first happened to me actually in Boston because uh, when I lived in San Diego, people were a lot more like I was in a community where you know dinner parties and stuff was a lot more common. Mm-hmm. And I remember inviting a colleague over for dinner and like, they gave me this look, like I asked him to undress in the middle of town or something. It's, they were like, it's so weird. I've experienced that too, really though. From walking they're like, why, why don't we do drinks? And I like, it totally like my week was wrecked. I was like, did I cross a boundary? <laughs> like, what did I like? And I just discovered living in cities now. That's like kind of a weird question to ask. It's like, it, it, but it's not a weird question to ask. It's a weird reaction to have. It just might be the common reaction, right? I mean, it's yeah. it's it's weird to not have close relationships with people you can look in the eye. It's weird to not have people you can rely on or people you can talk to. It's weird to have most of your relationships be one way because yeah. your, your relationships are with your phone or with your TV or you know with your tablet or with whatever it is that you're interfacing with, which is yeah. not a, not a person. To me, I don't, I am going to go out on a limb and I'm going to say, I think that this is a growing pain of learning and and scaling. And I think that we're going to have some big cultural health like problems. We're going to get sick. I think we're already maybe. We already are. Yeah. But look at the the rate of diabetes or of back problems and neck problems from just looking like that, you know? Well, there's, I think that I recently heard some, um, and I want to actually look at the research because it was, it was said as a quote in a book, but that, um, that loneliness is worse for your health than obesity, Mm. Ah, man, that is so true. What about when you combine the two? Yeah. Cause you're not, cause you're not not outside. You're not walking. Yeah. You're at a a desk all the time or you're sitting on the couch. It's so, it's so like pervasive that it's like, and, and I think one of the weird parts is it's very difficult to admit to somebody your loneliness. Yeah, for sure. Um, Cause you feel weak yeah, saying that. Yeah. Like there's a, Ooh, like, I, <laughs> I, are you about to ask for resources that I can't give? Right, you're not like, going to try to come over for dinner. Are you? <laughs> yeah. I mean like, and to be like, as much as I like want to share, you know, that to somebody, if someone shares that to me, it's like, Ooh, um, like to me, I've been encouraged by the, um, you know, I think that the vulnerability and, um, uh, what's her name? The vulnerability woman, uh, Brene Brown. Um, oh, right. Yeah. I think it's, it's good, but I, I take issue cause I think it's a little bit bougie. Um, because vulnerability is so cultural. Um, there's certain things, you know, my father-in-law was born in Iran and is Kurdish and for him to say certain things to me would be like normal or right. maybe, appropriate in his culture and for me i'm like whoa whoa, whoa don't share that right or, or vice versa i'd share something and and he and it would be offensive and so it's like or just the way the way turns, turned into a little bit of a um like a, a cultural signaling of like hey how similar are you to me right well yeah and there well and there's for sure we seek similarity that that comes back to when we were the 200 people groups, the little communities yeah. and villages, we, we do seek it right or wrong. We seek it because it helped us survive for most of the time our genes were being programmed. 
you know, so yeah. there, there is that, but there's also now we live in cities, clusters of 8 million, 10 million, 20 million. I don't even know how many people are in LA now, half the world. Yeah. Uh, it's four billion. Yeah. It's exactly it's, it, we're adapting to it. You know, it's different. It's, and it's, it's freaking people out and it makes anxiety, you know, at levels we've never seen before because yeah. our, our bodies don't know what to do with our environments anymore. They didn't, they didn't yeah. grow to be in a city. They grew up no. to fact, they grew up to be in nature where a lot less is happening, you know, and your eyes yeah. are built for scanning for like movement in a tree line. Then you stand in yeah. Times Square. Like, whoa, oh my God. Yeah, it's absolutely, it's, it, I think that's one of the weirdest parts is that like this phenomenon, like as we are growing collectively to, to, um, like the winners of our culture are people that are solving scalar problems, mm-hmm. you know, right? Like that's the Amazon Jeff Bezos, like Musk solving these scalar problems where you, because you don't really get rewarded anymore for solving 200 people's problems. Right. Like it used to be that you had all these towns everywhere because, well, is there 200 people? Is there a thousand people? Right. And then there's, you can solve each other's problems. Yep. Put up a um, school, put up a church. Let's do this. Yeah. And now it's like, we're better at solving a lot of these problems and say, well, no, I'm not going to buy that little thing from you because somebody already engineered a really good one of those things. And then they mass produced it and they've helped solve it for lots of people. It's, it's a good thing, but this loneliness and this, this, like the human element in this thing is a very weird one. And I think it's confusing for everybody involved. Yes. I think like just our elections, I'm sorry, I'm really tangenting, but like, I think it's evident. Um, like even our election process is much more of a beauty contest. Malcolm Gladwell was talking about like, it doesn't actually matter. It's a popularity contest. Donald Trump won. Yeah. It's <laughs> like we're, if, if you were going, like if this person was getting hired for a job at like McDonald's mm-hmm. or anywhere, like any standard where there's employment laws in place where you can't discriminate based on whatever. And usually you don't even know. Um, their name and gender when you're looking at all the candidate stuff so that you just go based on their qualifications. None of the people that were presidents would be presidents. Like no. it would. Um, I think it's unrealistic to have a president and expect them to be able to run the show. I don't think of, uh, you can have one conductor. There's a lot of things. You know, why, I, I've never met anybody that can know everything about finance and the military at the same time, like strategic yeah. military operations or, right? or finance or housing or healthcare. They're all, yeah. they're all gigantic buckets of very yeah. complex information with very confusing ups and downs and rights and wrongs. And, you know, the, the obvious answer very rarely makes any sense if you unpack the issue because they're complicated issues. Uh, how, yeah. how, how's one guy supposed to drive that ship or, or girl? How's one person well, supposed one to drive thing, that ship? I think, the, I think the, the embedded wisdom was that they knew that everybody had to believe in this person. We need a council of elders or something. We, we can't do it anymore. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think that they, be, they knew that everybody had to believe. They had to look and be like, I believe in you. Yep. Because if, if you don't believe, you know, it's that story part. Everybody had to tell themselves a story that this is going to, that, that this is working. And there was a time that that, that worked and there what people believed in the president and would rally behind. But wouldn't you say that time has come and gone? It's, it's certainly got to be reformed in some major way because it, it's, it's, it's not what it used to be. It's not at all what it used to be. And it's, and, and I think this is one of those scalar problems where we have to figure yeah, out. It is. Um, because I don't, I'm not persuaded by the billion solutions for a billion people answer necessarily. 
but maybe that's it. Maybe it's that we have to get back to that 200 person tribes kind of thing. Well, at least we have to figure out ways to mimic it or to bring things back in, in that learn. way. Yeah. Because yeah. The, the billion solutions, it can't work. You can't scale yeah. like that. You know, everybody's life can't be individualized. That's why you get to do your hair how you like and wear the clothes you want. That's your individuality. You know, go ahead and, yeah. go ahead and do that. Uh, I mean, I'm making light. There's also art and all kinds of stuff. But the point is, find your own individuality. But the way society works is we find what ties us all together and we focus on those things. And that's yeah. when we come together. Yeah. Without it, you don't, without it, you don't have a society. And then you, and then you have these an amplified version of what we're already talking about, where you, you, look, yeah. at your, you look at your neighbor as a stranger. You know, you, yeah. you're not well, connected. That's what, so for me, cause I, I view everything through the lens of housing, um, everything, but it's a big, it's been the lens of my career and it's what I get motivated by. And one of the things, and it's, it's been the evolution of the business. So, um, is thinking through what it looks like to like, Basically, I think with a lot of, you know, what I've seen and from the vantage point that I've had is that housing could be a lot better than this. Mm -hmm. Most people's housing situation, except for the, the pretty darn wealthy, um, is kind of a, it's kind of a shrug. And like, uh, well, this is what I got. Supposed to buy a house now. I guess um, this is what they tell me I can afford. I'll look at these houses and pick one. Yeah. There's no, we almost protect ourselves from aspiring in the housing space because we know we can't have the Chip and Joanna Gaines or the, you know, just the gorgeous architectural digest home. Which is ridiculous. On a bill. Yeah. It's just not in the, like, we... And so we, we have these very weird options with these very, um, sorry, my, my dog just came in. He occasionally comes in to check on me <laughs> um, and brings a toy. Um, we, for me, I started, and, and I think the other thing that was very weird to see within, and I really appreciated seeing the housing through the lens of mortgage mm-hmm. um, because I realized that, the consumer is not really the consumer. It's one of those industries where the consumer is the byproduct of the transaction. Yeah. Transaction is really going on between, um, you know, Fannie Mae and money center banks and then in the secondary market of trading the instrument. Right. And they're gambling on you. Those are the, they're gambling on you. And basically they, they own the house, they own the investment, they own the transaction and they're just counting on you to fill the coffers or they'll, take it yeah yeah there and it's it's this weird process where it's like wait the the homeowner itself we had a lot of big gains in our uh responsiveness in in it showed up in our revenue um just by working with a designer to redesign the statements because mm. we found that people didn't understand their statements it was just confusing and so they were like oh, i'm gonna kind of ignore it yeah yeah sure don't read it and right so it's too, it was, too many words yeah. And so it's using four color printing and, and which is difficult for a lot of servicers because they're on really paper thin margins, but mm-hmm. it's like, but we, we were like, yeah, let's just throw anything at the wall at this because we need to make some impact. 
And so it was, how can we put this, how can we think through it through the lens of a borrower trying to do this thing and get what they want? Because it was this weird, you know, kind of coming of age aha where it was like, oh, wait, this industry isn't made for you. It's just, it's hacking the fact that you need a place to live. Well, it doesn't have to be done either, right? The industry doesn't have to be baked. You can, you can change, you can innovate, you can do something yeah. new. So essentially you're, you're in Massachusetts, you've got this um, huge network, for lack of a better word, of distressed properties, and you're trying to figure out new ways to interface with the borrower to create the, a better solution, which either is they're getting out to their next home or they're recovering this one, depending on what the yeah. reality is. Yep. So, so with investor capital, we, we bought from, and we're usually, it's usually either banks that have gone through some sort of FDIC event and they're, they're closing down or they've been pulled together because their initial, you know, the initial attempts to help most of these borrowers were really, really poor. They were just like, okay, two letters. And then we sold your loan to somebody who will deal with us. Yep. Um, and so we were dealing with a lot of challenges and there was a ton of scars and a ton of, you know, it was the definition of like a learning curve. Um, but it was again, really cool to place to cut my teeth on one. Cause I saw that the mortgage industry is it's like the plumbing in your house. It's not that complex, but try changing it after the yeah. house it is just really so deeply embedded and so many things are layered on top that it's like, uh, yeah, I don't, you can't change any of that. Stuff. Right. Um, and for me, I was always wanting to get closer to the house, closer to the customer. And so, um, one of the things and what we've been working on recently has been, um, kind of, I think an, an evolution of the original, dream of look because we had a ton of these properties some of them would be converted to rentals mm -hmm. uh, some we would sell it was just based on you know what neighborhood so you uh, kind of like auditing each of the properties and seeing which which direction would be maximum gain for that asset like do, should this yeah. be a rental should this be uh for lack of a better term flipped as a you know a, yeah. a house for sale or yeah yeah exactly so we're renovating a ton of houses and then you're uh, doing the renovations too. Yeah. So we're renovating most of the time through um, third party vendors mm -hmm. because you can't measure that many at that time. But you're kind uh, of the GC or, so, or managing the GCs, but you're, yeah. you're hiring mm -hmm. the contractors and telling them what you want out of the homes. Yeah. So in uh, my, it's funny because my path has been uh, back towards the GC route because I've been wanting to understand the, the product at a more granular level. And mm -hmm. I have a lot of construction in my family and works construction, all my teenagers and stuff like that. So, um, I, you know, I don't feel unfamiliar on the construction site, but mm -hmm. I, when we moved to Seattle, my wife got a job at Microsoft and, uh, I actually got my GC license because I wanted to manage the trades directly. No kidding. Um, yeah. That's and cool. I wanted to feel the project management and the, again, it goes back to that uniqueness of every property. Mm -hmm. And there were certain lessons and certain rules that I followed that I kind of wanted to test. And certain ones didn't matter. Certain ones, it's like, oh, yeah, holy crap. Mm -hmm. Like, don't, that's a real, 
you know, I think for me, one of my scalar lessons is if I'm, if I'm managing a lot of renovations and I'm representing the capital, I've got my own investors. I'm trying to go as minimal as possible, which I hate because I feel like I don't get to do the service that I want to, to realize the value. And it's minimal in order to maximize the ROI. Is that the thinking? Yeah. And, and also minimize the risk, which is kind of different ways of saying the same thing. No, but, but they're different because, but at the same time, do you come, you got to come across, maybe it's, maybe it's the rare gem, but you got to come across properties where the higher end will be a better yeah. fit. You know, and you, if, yeah, if, you, if you, if you buy up a $3 million house that needs work and you put all Lowe's fixings in it, it's not going to sell. 100%. No, yeah, no, you, so yeah, whenever you're in a neighborhood, you're looking at that, you know, where is that average price per square foot that, yeah. that sells for and trying to not over improve for a market, but trying also not to, I mean, to me, those are my favorite markets. Um, How many markets of, are you in? Uh, right. So right now, if it's, if it's across the, like the various LLCs, um, we're in, you know, like 30 cities. Um, That's hard to know though, right? Neighborhood by neighborhood. What's the median really for, are. The, for the, Actually, some of the, I got the chance to work on some, uh, I use the word technology, but it's really math. Um, worked with some really cool mathematicians and engineers to, um, and it's, uh, to develop this predictive engine, um, this, that meant to be a pricing engine and a determination engine, but it was ultimately looking at, um, billions of data points, mm -hmm. um, and looking for correlations that wouldn't necessarily show up for it or make sense. And then you're looking for clusters, um, where the correlations would, would cluster around, a um, a centroid it's called, but, and you're looking for distance be between a given thing. You're looking for how close does this match a given cluster. And one of the applications that I am really hoping I, I can work on soon is, is applying that to neighborhoods. The basic goal of saying, Hey, how similar is this neighborhood to this? Uh -huh. I know, I know this neighborhood. And that gives you some safety in that you understand the investment. You understand what has to happen to make it pull its value. Yeah. That, that helps you not over improve something. Um, it's really helpful because, you know, as you're trying to systematize renovations, um, you want to be able to say as quickly as possible, this is what this thing should get. Right. Um, and for me, I really would love to take it a step further in line with this. How do you scale these things? Um, I really, to me, I, I get so frustrated and saddened, and I, I shouldn't because it's not necessarily something bad that's happening, but I get so frustrated um, when I just see old homes torn down, for lack of a better term. Yeah. And trust, like, I've done projects that should have been torn down. Um, it is much cheaper to build a new house than it is to to restore one. I think, you know, you've done some, yeah, I've done some old and I love fixing up old houses and, and bringing them back to glory. Uh, I haven't not at the level of you. I've only done a couple, but yeah, I, I, so I get it at a really micro level. Yeah. It's, it's awesome. And it can be all that the television shows say it is. It can be a money pit. It can be, um, they can, and by the way, one property can be all those things. 
It, yeah. it can be a money pit. It can also end up making you money. It can make you pull your hair out, but make you super happy. It, it can do all the things. Yeah, it's 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 why the Chip and Joanna, Joanna games, it's why the fixer-upper thing isn't actually a model right now in the United States. Like, you can't, if you and me wanted to buy the fixer-upper product, we can do that. Well, they sell uh, they sell a lie. I mean, they, they sell a bold-faced, yeah. slap-in-the-face lie. Like, here's a $300,000 house that had $1.2 in labor that nobody charged them for. Like, it, yeah. it, it's, a, it's a lie. Totally. You can't have that house for the money that they talk about. No, you can't. And, you and, can't and have but people... But people would love to have it. and, and, and I'd love to have it. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I to me, that's actually a, a driver for what I'm working on is, is saying, um, you know, how do we take right now, um, like, I guess what, I, what I've been kind of dogfooding and working on this last year is how do you do a reverse flipping model? Because you never see flippers don't survive a housing cycle usually. They, they all go under or they graduate and become developers. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of that is because you have to extend yourself so much on so many properties that, it, that everything has to work mm-hmm. in order for the model to keep working. Yep. Um, that's one of the things that I, I'm skeptical about with the new iBuyer trend um, that Zillow and Redfin and a lot of these companies are doing where it's basically you're on their website, you want to sell your house, you just press, I want to sell my house. This is where I live. Mm-hmm. And then they'll give you an offer and buy your house without a broker or anything. You don't do showings. Um, and the idea is that these companies will use their data to buy better. Um, but they have to kind of offer fair market. They're competing with each other. They have to offer fair market value. So if the house, if the market goes south, there's no way out of that hole. No. Um, and they're buying like thousands of properties at a time right now. Are, um, are there still, has the market corrected? Is there still a huge glut of, properties are we just not hearing about it anymore like it was uh, all it was all the news for a couple of years right when the bubble yeah, burst largely corrected um now default behavior is still happening um and it's happening at kind of the store at at more of the normative levels so there are still groups that are doing this mm-hmm. but you're not seeing the the crazy mispricing that used to be um that's not happening anymore that helped the flipper market too right where you could buy the house for 20 grand and then if you fix yeah. it up over six months or a year sell it for 200 that that that's probably gone the the range yeah that's mostly gone and so what i think could be really cool because there's a couple loan products like the Fannie Mae home style loan and the uh fha 203k loan that lets you actually borrow um, a renovation budget. Like they base the loan on the after repaired value. And so if you're buying this fixer upper, um, you can get this loan product. Cause most people, they, you know, they save up for their mortgage and it's like, sorry, honey, like for Micah countertops are staying because we don't have any money. Right. So they do the, the shrug like, yeah, this is where we live. Um, so it's a really cool loan product, but nobody uses it. I, I got lunch with, uh, the Fannie Mae inspector in, in Seattle and I was like, oh, man, thanks for meeting with me. I'm sure you're so busy. And he was like, I have to keep a second job. He's like, I have under 10 clients for the year. Wow. Uh, he, was like, Cause no, he was like, you think about it, realtors have no incentive to, to push you into a home that's less than you can afford. Like, they make money on the, on the, the upside. The transaction. So the the uh, yeah. percentage of the transaction. So they're trying to get you into what's the most expensive? Buy that. Right. Um, contractors would way rather do some fancy, you know, woman's kitchen, um, and take a fat margin on that than have to deal with draws and all this stuff like that. So 
there's no like contractors out there pushing this product mm-hmm. and loan brokers can just do normal standard fanny product and make the same amount rather than holding your hand and helping you. So then the consumer has to figure all this stuff out and find a contractor and find a broker that'll help them. And good luck and with that. that. Yeah. Good luck with that. So, wh- yeah, so, so then, we need an incentive driven plan to get people to do it. Yeah. You need this. Well, so I've looked into like, well, okay. Well, so the I incentives have, have to be for the realtor and for the, for the other people involved in the transactions, not for the homeowner. Cause the homeowner yeah, obviously right. wants it. They benefit from it. Well, I've right now, and, and it's, it's still got more thinking to do, but my thought is basically if you can, you know, I've had my real estate license in, in Washington, contractor's license, not that hard to get your broker's license. You know, if I could fee stack and all of a sudden take more per transaction and just be able to deliver the turnkey. Um, what's really nice about it is that I'm not taking any capital risk on the project. Mm-hmm. So if I convince you know, Amazon employees who love this product, they watch Fixer Upper. Um, they're the one getting underwritten for the loan. Um, I then don't have to scale back my renovations because it's their money on the line, not mine. Right. And the, um, and the upside of the investment that the project is bringing has already been assessed. Yeah. And they keep it, which is also nice. That's why it's kind of a reverse flipping model because it's like, well, yeah, you, you get the upside. Um, and, I don't have to, I can scale this business without having to scale my capital risk. Yeah. Always the hardest thing because then if the house goes south, well, they're already living in it and they already got approved for it. And I will say underwriting standards have improved a lot. And so they're kind of okay waiting out a couple of years for a market correction. Whereas, you know, the flipper then just. Right. It's a very different relationship than the flipper has. They got to get the house out of their hands immediately. The the couple yeah. live there. Is does the this type of loan does it does the money get paid to a contractor or do they give a check to the homeowner? Because it sounds like it this would be ripe for fraud. Yeah, no, it gets paid to the contractor, and it's paid in draws. So the contractor has to actually front the money, do the work, install it. And then they get reimbursed for it, which is another reason why contractors don't like it. Well, yeah, but that's a great way to do it because most con not that's terrible to say, not most contractors, but most contractors people come up across are, will, will rip people off. The, the, you, oh, yeah. you're, you're a few and far between to find someone who's like, I have the best contractor. I, I every experience has been great. Yeah, most, oh, most stories are a rip off or they won't really, show up yeah. or. It's a very, very hard thing to do. Um, most contractors aren't good at estimating their time, me included. Um, they're not good at understanding how big of a problem something is. And, and again, like construction, it's the most non-scalar thing. You solve that one problem and you have now solved that problem for the entire, just that house. Yep. It like, and so you have to then figure it out at the next. And, and to me, that is a scalar problem that I get really curious about. I, I really like, because there are similarities, there are, are ways to duplicate it. And, you know, you look at home builders, national home builders that build new products, well, they don't, there isn't a national remodeler yet um, because of this scalar issue. Mm-hmm. You're building a new product. You can really get a system going. How you go in and diagnose the problems, you know, draw a set of as-built drawings, design the new space, identify your shear walls and your load bearing walls, assess the foundation. It's a, it's a big, big, big problem. Yes. But I love, I, I just am so inspired one with the idea of extending the life of these homes and not just, 
I really hate this delete culture. Yeah, this yeah. Culture. Oh, well. Where it's like, hey, look, here's this new square box. Isn't it cool? It's like, no, it's like just tomorrow's slum. Right, like, right. Really, 10 years from now, slum. Yeah, the the, the houses, like, they're like disposable homes. They are. And they're like, and so the idea of trying to extend the, the, the sense of place in, a, in these neighborhoods, um, which is much more difficult if you're in the middle of, you know, Dallas suburbs and they're all homogenous model matches and they didn't exist before the 90s. That, that's a valid product out there. I don't think this particular model works as well because there's not as much upside. It's like, look, no, everything here sells for $204 a square foot. So if you improve the property to 208, you're still selling it for $204. Right, right. And it sounds like, trying to wrap my head around it, you're, it sounds like you're interested in taking the business to a more grassroots level where you're you, you know you got your gc license you're involved you want to be more involved with the actual rehab of the properties but then again you're in probably all time zones that we have in the united states and you're across i think you said 30 cities so and and scale seems to be a repeating interest of yours so you want to take a grassroots element inject it in and then figure out ways to efficiently scale that yeah, that's that's a good um, yes is the simple answer. I love um, it. How do you do it? How do I do it? <laughs> I know, uh, to me, the going small thing, like so, most of the like the cities that we're in are are managed from the capital side, held by you know on the investment side, and that's there's not room in that capital model for this. When you say investment side, do you essentially run it as different businesses? There's an invest, yeah. there's a, yeah. there's a group investing in these properties and then yep. there's another LLC that's related that rehabs the properties. Yeah, precisely. Uh, so, see, I'm, so I'm, like, I'm digging here. Rehab LLC is not connected to investing LLC. Got it. Um, this is a separate, you know, basically a spinoff. And so, um, and it, it's, it's specifically, you know, right now we've done five projects on the, the rehab side. So it's really small. Local to where you uh, are? Yeah. So that you can touch them, see them, feel them, ring the doorbell. Touch them, see them, yeah. feel them, feel the trades. In my mind, the, the goal is to to try to scale to to specifically master, you know, an MSA, a city, and try to, you know, my goal is to treat it as a consumer product. I, I would love to bring technology in. You know, my vision would be that someone could could buy a house like they do customizing their Mac mm-hmm. on Apple's website where they're making some changes they're making. Cause it's, it's not actually fun to make the billion choices you need to make in a renovation. That's not actually cool. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone thinks it is until they like get choice fatigue and they're like, Oh, yep. I feel like the, the goal would be to help people to build a relationship where they're like, okay, if these people do it, it's going to be quality. Mm-hmm. It's going to be craft. There's going to be craftsmanship. Um, so I'm in, I'm signed up. I'll, I'll give you a deposit find the house and then, Hey, which, which visual direction are we going to take this? Yeah, I get it. It's a good, I, I yeah. love it. It's like, um, I didn't mean to cut you off there. I was just, no. like, I was, I wanted to explain that. I think I see what you're saying where it goes back to like the chip and Joanna Gaines, where you're going to, you want a, you want your product to be a known quality so that rather than showing someone 15 sets of tile to then they can figure out how that will go with 15 shades of wood for their cabinets, you want to show them five different kitchens and say, which style do you like? I'll deliver a kitchen. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Is that- or, or 
thinking really like, okay, we're going to expand this into the house. Well, that's what I mean. But like, instead of, instead of granular yeah. tile details, you're talking Precisely. about kitchen, bathroom, house, not, yeah. not, not uh, trim and exactly. toothbrush holders. And totally. It's one of those things where it's like, okay, that'll still be on you later in the future. Or if you want to pay for the ultra, ultra custom and you have the money, you can do it. Mm -hmm. But the letting people, you know, in, in, in my like utopia, it's like every home is a custom home. Mm -hmm. Like every, everyone should customize their home. Everyone does. And so it's like, Hey, let's build this product to where everyone can a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, maybe you have really meager, maybe it's a $10,000 budget, but it's just enough to get that kitchen feeling where you, you have this really great sense of a nest and a home doors. Yeah. Yeah, I, for I sure. It's special feeling. So, so to me, that is like, that's the driving towards how I'm driving it towards it. I'm not sure. Um, I, um, am going to be making decisions here soon. This is where it kind of goes antithetical possibly to the entrepreneur blog uh, because I'm actively thinking about what does it look like to, to maybe join a company mm -hmm. um, because as I've modeled out the opportunity, there's some scale challenges. Mm -hmm. um, and my experience has been, and it's just been mine as, a, as an entrepreneur and as a, which is a is that like, if you're raising capital, you're in the business of raising capital. Yep. You're not working on the business and it sucks. It feels great, but it really kind of sucks. Only the I'm wind feels like, great. Only like the getting the check feels great. The whole chase yeah. feels like pretty slimy. And, and, and unless you have like the coolest iPhone thing, you're usually giving up way more than you thought you were going mm -hmm. to be giving up. Um, and right, no one thinks your idea is as good as you do. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I, I feel, yeah, it's a difficult thing. I, I think it's really romanticized. I mean, I almost feel like it's almost over romanticized. When I, if I were talking to somebody about starting something, it's like, mm -hmm. um, it's not going to just work. <laughs> no, no, it's definitely not going to. That's been a recurring story with every single person I talk to is it doesn't just work. But sometimes if you get into things young, yeah, you have to be dumb enough to think they're going to work to, to yeah, try to kick the doors funny. open and then learn a those lessons. My, a lot of my like decisions were based on incorrect thinking, but had I not had it, I wouldn't have done it. Uh huh. For sure. Um, and the hard part is that a lot of the things, the fail, like I've said, like the only way to, to like learn how to fly is behind the yoke. Like you just can't read a book and do it. You, you also can't like, you know, charter the plane and pay for the gas and sit in the back. Like you just don't care as much about turbulence until you're feeling the thing shaking and you're like, Oh, exactly. Exactly. And then it's, Holy shit. I got to get this house in order. It, yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it, that, so that this is, I wanted to ask you, I was kind of thinking about it, but then you brought up the whole possibly making a shift and making a change. Yeah. Uh, that's interesting. So what's driving that? Is it the scalability and just the, the, it's daunting to, you don't want to get into the business of raising money. You want to get in, you want to stay in the business of building these assets. Um, and I'll tell you where I'm going with the question. So you can t answer it however you want, but what's, what's behind making that change? Um, and it, sort of 
combined with what got you into business for yourself in the first place? You know, what, what yeah. led you out on your own and then what would be bringing you back to the other side, so to speak? Yeah. Um, so I think that, um, let me think about how to answer that. I think that what led me out on my own was one, just being surprised when someone was right, willing to write a big check mm-hmm. for something I was doing. It was like, Oh, <laughs> oh shit. Like that's, okay. Let's do that. Um, and two, I was drawn by the, by the hero myth of entrepreneurship and, and this stuff like that. Um, the, like the, the 1% Silicon Valley story of the, yeah, the, yeah. exactly. Yep. I, I, and I, I just, the, the list, if it were a different environment or maybe part two of just the, the incorrect thoughts that I had, mm-hmm. um, are so long. And, and for me, they're worth at some point saying, because like, I don't think people should make them. Like, I, I think people should, like, you should, it's weird because it's one of those things where you can't jump out and do it perfectly. But I think there's almost been, and I could be over picking up on this, but I feel like people have taken um, this fail fast and failure has been romanticized. And I want to be like, whoa, 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 the goal is not to fail. Like, I, I, yeah. So the, it's interesting you frame it that way. Cause that's very different than how I look at it. But when you frame it that way, that's correct. Absolutely. The goal is not to fail. But I don't think you can get to the finish line without failures that you learn from, without failures that you move forward based on. Because it, like, it makes it sound extreme, but owning a business, whether it's a small local business or some complex huge firm, you're jumping out of a plane and you have to build the parachute before it'll open. Like, you, you don't know. No matter how much you plan, there's a lot of stuff that you don't know that's going to come up. It's going to throw you for a loop. It's going to freak you out. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to ruin a lot more than just a day. And you're going to have to figure it out. And it's not in your wheelhouse. And it's nothing you were prepared for. And it wasn't in the business plan, you know? And totally. That, that's all true. And that... I, a lot of people don't build the parachute on the way down. Like, right, right, right. Like, right. They're is, in the squirrel suit just aiming for something else. It is most likely, like the default is that you will hit the ground without a parachute. Yep. And, but I, I do like your point. And I think, I think this second sentence to the failure is not the goal is, but it is an inevitable part. It, it's it's actually a process of learning and you have to do it. You have to be but willing I, to because failure hurts. Yeah. And I think the, it's like, for me, the statement is, is important because it's like, no, no, no. Success is the goal. Keep your, don't be obsessed like, in fact, it's been an interesting shift for me because I've recently clarified that success is a big value of mine. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, because success is this word that gets used as a lot of things. Mm-hmm. And for me, the nuance, I've never been as felt as nuanced about it. I don't mean um, that I'm rich or that I have any of this stuff, whatever it is. Right. What I, for me, what I mean by successful is... Um, um, is accomplishing the task, whatever it is, accomplishing the goal mm-hmm. uh, or accomplishing getting to the wind despite the hurdles. It's, it's just, look, I want to be successful. If, if my vision is to have a good relationship with my wife, I want to be successful in that. Mm-hmm. If my vision is to go to home Depot, I want to be successful at navigating there. Mm-hmm. I want it to be like, 
a a commitment, I guess, basically to get to where I'm going. Yeah, uh, I'll, like there's that path. I'll I'll tell you, I I agree. And like so, the way that that translates personally for me is, and it didn't always, but it does now in the way that I operate my business. And I, I don't even like saying entrepreneur. I'm more interested in small business than I am entrepreneurship yeah. or any kind of uh, any kind of hashtaggy term. Me too, thank I, you. I, yeah, I just like people that are, and I, I like. I like business owners, people that are just out there trying to make something happen and they're doing it, yeah. for, they're doing it to affect their own world and the people around them. But totally. th- and that doesn't matter big or small. I just like, I, I like to look at it more that way. It's because business owners take grit. Entrepreneurs have fancy hair and, and investors. Yeah. Uh, oh. That's just the way I think about it. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. The, the guy in the blue suit, that's not the right, like you'd never find a suit that color with the special shoes. And that's the entrepreneur. Yeah. That's not the business owner. But anyway, yeah. I, 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 I'm way off track. What, what I was getting at was success. And when I was young and like when this company was young, my goals were all based on financial success and, and, you know, being the baller. And it's not to say money's not important now, but money's one ingredient in success and there's bigger ingredients. And like now the reason I own a business and still own a business and don't have any intentions of not is one of the ways I pay myself, one of the ways I get success is time. And I pay myself in time, meaning I'm home at five and I won't see my phone again till seven thirty when the kids go to bed or I'm at all of the games, all of the sporting events, all of the Cub Scout meetings. That's a, that's a valuable thing to me. And I pay myself yeah. in that, in that I don't accept work in those times. That doesn't mean there's not exceptions and emergencies and things that come up, but at a, you know, at a 90% rate, I'm, I cover those bases by not being available. And, and I couldn't do that if I didn't. I like that. The joint, I like you know? the term paying, paying yourself. And that's a cool, um, it's a cool way to, to think about it. it, it helped. And, and I think it's, Go ahead. No, go ahead. It helped me to do it, to think about it that way. You know what I mean? It helped me that that's a, that's a, that's part of my revenue is I'm going to yeah, go be at the hockey game. Yeah, it's so true. And it's, it's a, um, yeah, it's so true. I, I, so the, for me, the where the thinking where I'm at in, in potentially joining a company, I think one of the, the thoughts that are, that undermine or that underpins what it's taught me to go out on my own and, you know, hunt for revenue and, mm-hmm. you know, hunt for investment dollars and these things like that um, is that I have had to personalize a lot more of my, what I want to do in my career and my strategy is like, this is my thing I have to point to. Mm-hmm. I'm not because I'm always being lazy in my brain and hoping that somebody else will just take me on their magic boat to wherever it is. We all have that to a degree. You have, yeah. to, you have to fight that every single day and own it. Yeah. It's like, no, I, I have to, I'm the business. I'm, I'm my, in the business of my life. Mm-hmm. And what, what's missing? Like what's in the way for me to grow on my next path. And so for me, I have, um, just, you know, recently found out that I have a baby on the way. Uh, first one, Can't which wait to I'm super excited about and know it's going to rock my world and know that it's going to be, um, big learning curve and and 
if I could find now, I'm not just going to go work for any company. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, it's I'm kind of interviewing and starting conversations to see is there a company where I can increase the skills I want to increase mm-hmm. um, and have access to data that I can't afford and and you know fund projects that I want to work on um, without having to go raise the capital. Will it enrich your life? Yeah, will right. it enrich my life? Will it get me closer to solving this problem? Um, will it get me? One of an old mentor and investor and boss said, uh, um, for him, the secret to his success has been uh, that he's always one person away from the answer, and that for him, it's all the question is always who. And I think that there's some limitations to that approach, but there's some. It is powerful for him. He's to constantly be thinking, who's better at this than me? Mm-hmm. Let me go connect with them. Um, and so in my mind, the other part is if I can find a That's a good exercise in ego that he's gone through too, where he's not, I'm the best of this. Everyone should learn from me. He's always yeah. seeking out what's better than him, just admitting I'm not the king of this hill. Yeah. You, you, you don't yeah. start there. Okay. At least most people don't start there. I think it's a really powerful one. It's a really, and so for me, that's the, who's the company out here that's, that's maybe a couple of steps along in this process. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I've got to set my expectations that I, it won't be, um, it won't be the vision I want. Mm-hmm. Like I won't be able to go all the way. Um, maybe I can, maybe I can go part of the way, but part of it is from a lifestyle standpoint, I've talked to some of my mentors and it's like, look, if you go hard trying to scale this business and try to raise some of this capital, you are not going to be a dad. Yeah, like you're, you're, you're going to be a father a little bit, but you're going to be implicitly asking everybody in your world to pick up your slack. And that, and that's a real thing to think about. Right. I mean, yeah. th- that's where, and that's where I, I, the point of the show or the whole reason I'm interested in small business is I am by no means saying everyone should start a business for being small business. This show is just for the people who sort of have always wanted to and haven't sort of gotten the kick in the pants to do it. If it's right yeah. for you, it's right for you. And and the where I like the thing back to where I pay myself in time. There's also a lot of business owners who cannot draw a line in the sand, and their time is ravaged by owning a business. And they might oh, be yeah. be, they might be better off at a nine to five and having That's a work life balance. Of my experience is that weekends are just weekends aren't weekends. Even if I am like taking time off. I'm playing whatever problem over in my head a million mm-hmm. times because I know I'm the only person who can solve it. Right. So, um, so it's, a, it's, it's affected your life in, in different ways and some of the ways that it's affecting it now, you're not sure you want to bring into the family home. Yeah. I think I, you know, I think that I will basically, I think for me, I've said whether I start this, I want to see this happen in the world and whether I start it, with a hundred percent of the equity or I get some equity allocation over time or, you know, I'm less of a piece of it. Mm-hmm. I want to be working on that problem. I want to be getting better at that process. Yeah. And at some point, maybe I hit the, I hit a wall with a group I'm working with and I go out and I have, I started again, but with better relationships with better for me. I, yeah, I and, don't, and some more knowledge, right? Some more information. Yeah. And I don't necessarily view it as a, to me, I like having the approach of I'm going to start, I'm going to own another business. I'm going to do this again. Mm -hmm. Um, 
with another, I'm gonna, but for me, it's almost like working for a company is a pivot towards, okay, well, this is the scenario of my life and I want to be there more for my kids. Mm -hmm. And I also want to be, you know, have access to data and have access to certain things that I know it'd be difficult to raise the money for saying, Hey, you know, $250,000 of your capital is going to go towards buying data. Right. Cool. Yeah. I mean, for sure. But, and, but to, to like the, the, the bigger side of your point, not the bigger side, but one of the more emotional sides of the point in emotional internally is I don't think owning a business is cooler or less cool. I don't think it makes you better or worse. I don't think there's, yeah. there's, there's this cachet that, you know, owning the business is better than working at the business. But I know a lot of people who work in regular jobs who are happier than a lot of people that own businesses. Now on oh, the flip, yeah. I know a lot of people that own businesses that are, you know, really enjoying life as well. It, it's the person. It's not whether or not you own a business. It's whether you own the business and then whether you manage that business in a way that it would work for your life. Like, like mine hasn't always enabled me, but it's at a place now where it is, but it, yeah. it, you know, it's been, it's been 19 years. It, it, totally. it didn't happen overnight and it took a lot of introspective thinking and I give up certain things like you know if i were pushing 80 hours a week and never didn't take a call and never didn't sure i'd probably have more customers who would be paying me more money or the business would be bigger but i don't want to live that way right so yeah. then so then i i have to figure out what what's the balance where i want to take it and it's it's not it's not a it's not a badge of I mean, it is there's a badge of honor to owning it because you take a certain amount of pride that you built something but i don't have any issue and i don't think people should take issue with what's right at what point in their life and whether or not now is the time to open the business yeah yeah i think i think that there's it i could say with some conf, with a lot of confidence it will um it will create more problems than it solves for maybe ever or for at least a while mm -hmm. i think i don't think anyone should be expecting that it's going to relieve problems. Well, it depends uh, on what problems, doesn't it? I mean, because I have, yeah. a, on the conversely, I also have a lot of friends in regular jobs who have, even if they're not openly talking about it or viewing it, they have problems that I wouldn't want, meaning they're yeah. gone from 7 a.m. till 7 or 8 p.m. They're at work. Totally. And that's a problem I don't want because I, I fit a lot of shit in my day that between seven and seven, that isn't work. That is for me. You know, yeah. that, that's, I go to the gym, I go to jujitsu. I'm with my kids. You know, I, I do all kinds of stuff in those hours. Cause I'm, I can, cause I'm flexible yeah. to build it. I can, it's Jenga. Whereas some people it's not, you check in uh -huh. and until you check out, you're, you're, you're there. And there, there's a lot of problems that come with that too. Yeah, no, it's, it's so true. I, um, have you seen that show? The good place? Yes. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Really, really it's funny. The character, I think it's Jason, who's from Jacksonville. Um, they're like, he has this great line where he's like, um, he, he's praising um, uh, Molotov cocktails. And he's like, no, trust me, they always work. Because whenever I have a problem, I throw one and then boom, I have another problem. Or I have a new problem. <laughs> Every time. And I feel like that's how business is. It's like, oh, and then I started a problem and then boom. I had a new problem mm -hmm. yeah. and I feel like it's important to weed out this idea that, um, you know, it's like, no, 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 there's more of a struggle. The struggle is real. Oh, oh yeah. 
you have to want the struggle. You have to be the kind of person that embraces the struggle. It's no set it and forget it. You're going to, you're going to, the business will then become tethered by you. Mm-hmm. And so all of your personal issues will become the business issues. And, and you're the pace setter. I had a good friend write this post recently and he owns a, um, a great construction company on the East coast. And he, it was something about like, um, you know, opposed to thank everybody who's worked for me. And then he proceeded to list all of the bosses he had had um, and business owners he'd, he'd worked for before he started his own business. Mm-hmm. It was like, I always thought I worked for you, but I didn't realize when I screwed up, you made less profit or no profit. Um, when I was, you know, when I was out sick, you were still paying everything. Mm-hmm. Like you were organizing, you were setting up so many dominoes that I didn't realize you were setting up that you were really working for me. Um, yeah, man, that's, it's a, it's a good exercise to realize who you're working for. Yeah. Um, yep. Because when you're working for yourself, it's, it's not really the right term. It's like, no, I'm, I'm working. Well, that's for, a lie. Yeah. You work for your clients. Yeah. You work for your clients. You work for your vendors on a certain level, because mm-hmm. if you don't have the revenue to pay them, like you're, you're hurting a lot of other people. Like well, and you, and you might be out of business if they stop giving you what you need to make your product or whatever it is that you sell. If you, if you sell, a, a, if your business is based on getting things from a vendor and then putting those out to the consumer and you can't pay the vendors, you're not in business. It's over. Yeah. It's over. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, it's everything is higher stakes. And I think for me, it's like with this value of success, pivoting to, you know, and, it, and again, it's not a foregone conclusion, but that's where my thinking is leading me right now. Mm-hmm. Um, is a is just a way to accomplish my goal. It's just a way to be successful because for me, it's like, okay, the business of me needs different variables right now. So if I don't switch revenue models, I'm this new one is going to be more costly than I want right now. Yeah, no, I, and I love it. I love the the authenticity of the you sharing it too, where you're, you're, and it's not a, it's not a purely fiscal or revenue based decision. You're, you know, the, your impending son is one of the big catalysts for making this decision too. That's, that's real life. That's, that's, you can't get more real life than that. No, it's, and it's weird because I've had so much advice of like, Oh, make sure that you're, you've got all this started so that when you, you know, cause once you have kids, it's going to be a lot harder to make this decision. And I know that I know that like, you know, if I break off then later, it I'll have to kind of relearn the, you know, I'll have to relearn stuff where I'm like, Oh yeah, this is how it used to feel. Yeah. When I didn't have a paycheck coming in. And this is how it used to feel when I had to set these these targets and these goals. And mm-hmm. um so so that'll happen, but I also think I'm more aware that I'm spending my life than ever. Like I'm more aware that I never get this decade back. Yep. That Everything is, it's just memories from here on out when I look back at what I'm doing. Yep. And the only thing that's going to matter is how you spend those memories. Yeah. And so in my mind, getting, increasing my skills, increasing my relationships, um, being there as a dad, that's meaningful. And that's potentially more meaningful than I used to just have this glory mentality. Like, oh, I'm just going to figure it all out and I'll come to the end. And so for me, it's just a, a shift, but one that I hope will enable me to 
solve the problem more effectively because it's bigger than just I can do. You're preaching to the choir, man. And there's no right answer. There's only the answer for you. But like 10 years ago, I had no kids and I was chasing the glory and I had no, um, I had no hobbies. I had, you know, I had friends, I had my wife and I had my business and that, you know, I mean, I'm simplifying it, but that was my life. Yeah, and and I, I looked deeper and started to figure out who do I want to be and what kind of dad do I want to be and what, yeah. you know, in 30 years, what do I want to be looking back at? And now I probably have too many hobbies, most of which I share with my kids and with my wife every time I can get her to take part with us, you know? So yeah. it's, we do a lot of things as a family and there's a lot of activities that we do. We all mountain bike, we all snowboard, we all do martial arts, we all do archery, yeah. we all, you know, we all do things and we do them together. And they're, they're good discipline building things that build bonds because you have to work towards them, even though if you don't know you're working, you know, like riding down yeah. a difficult mountain bike trail is hard but it's fun as totally. well too. So the kids, the yeah. kids don't have to think about the fact that they're learning, but like I can look back now at I'm 44. I can look back at my mid thirties. And then now where I have all kinds of hobbies that enrich my life. And it's because I've changed the way I view success to your earlier point and the way yeah. of what I'm going to pull out of this, this time. Yeah. How you're going to get there. I think it's that insistence of like, I'm going to get there. I'm going to get that. That's that value of success for me is that, it basically makes the failure, it turns it into the learning because I'm like, no, well, no, 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 I have to keep going. I have to figure out like, oh. because you just have to take your whelps in business. Yes, but it doesn't mean you have to continue to take the whelps you're taking. You can't hit a reset button like you're debating where you might continue to take, yeah. the, take them and, and, uh, and figure it out. And I'm sure I have confidence you would figure it out, but maybe the better move, you'll have to figure it out. Maybe the better move is to step out to then one day step back in at a better place yeah. and to, and to figure things out who knows I, i'm not saying that the right answer is not or to do it only yeah you know. no i i think i think one one thing that i would say and my career path hasn't followed this but i would say this is that um one i feel like most people should go get a skill on somebody else's dime um they should like there's like the world doesn't need like another graphic designer fresh out of college or mm -hmm. something like that um, you could do it, but go to an agency, um, go, go build those relationships. Um, I heard recently that like the most, most successful businesses are started by people in their forties. Mm -hmm. Um, which I thought was interesting. Um, yeah, I've seen that there are these like outliers, but it's kind of, I would almost like, if I was cautioning my kids, like, no, no, like get, get pretty deep, you know, decent at something. Um, and, and have the patience to get better at it and get better and better. Um, okay. And pivot if you need to. Oh yeah. And if you're wanting to and, and do pivot, like I think it's fantastic and, and get fascinated. Don't, don't necessarily like if you're obsessed with something, keep, you know, follow the breadcrumbs. Yeah. I mean, that's um, what life's about is if you're good, if you can become obsessed with something, especially some healthy obsession, that's just something really interesting. You're passionate about go that route. That's going to be a way better life. Yeah. And I, I think for me, it's like, if, it, if there was a litmus test of like jump out on your own, I'd be like, go, go get a customer while you're in your job, get somebody, it can be fake. You can tell them after that, sorry, you know, I'm, I'm not selling it right now. Price is too high, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, like with this, I was like buying some Facebook ads just to see like, and I got like overwhelming support where people were like, yes, I will 
if I can buy the Chip and Joey Joanna Gaines model, I will buy. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, I validated it, but get a customer, and you know, don't like be skeptical of seminars or consultants or these people that are gonna like help you do it because there's so many. Party. There's so many of those out there where you know pay for access to my video where I'm going to give you all the secrets to insert industry here. It's a bunch yeah. of horseshit. It's it, there's nothing yeah. to it. Uh, the one thing I try to teach my kids, whether or not they become business owners, whether or not they're entrepreneurs, um, which of course I would like to see just cause I like the freedoms that, that it sure. enables me, but whether or not they do, I don't care the passion. And then the understanding that really it's grit that makes things work, whether or not it's uh, your own business or you're working a a great job, like a marine biologist for some university, it's going to be grit that sets you apart from the next person. It's not luck. It's not your ideas because everybody has ideas. It's grit. Can you make your idea real? Yeah, that's, I think that's a hundred percent the answer. It's, it's grit. It's one more set and it's doing it again. Um, And, and you know, it's like, you know, when you worked hard, like, yeah, you know. for sure. And you, because f- you can feel it and you can feel a relief from the yeah. pressure because you're like, all right, it might not work. That might fail, but I did what I could do. I just, I put yeah. it all on the table. Yeah. To me, that's, that's where there's value. And, and that is also the payoff. That's also the doing it. So that's another part I, of the success. Yeah. It's just, I try to remind myself on a lot of this stuff that I'm accomplishing. It's like, yeah, like, but it's not because it's building this. It's not for the future payoff thing. It's not like that, oh man, we could build this and then sell it to somebody. It's that actually actually accomplishing it, feeling that like the endorphins after a late night yep. is actually the payoff. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. That's okay. I, I just got paid in, in the, the like... I didn't think I could. And then somehow I broke through. Yep. I couldn't agree more. It's a, it's that, that feeling of success. It's a, like you, you mentioned the, the one more rep it's, it's yeah, it's that it's going beyond where you thought you could. And all of a sudden you're a new person with new possibilities. Cause you can do things you didn't think you could do. That's a great feeling. Yeah. I think it's a great, and it, it's a, I think it's harder than ever because you have to, you have to build, you know, the whole getting a customer thing is important because it's like, there's a lot of industries that are shrinking. There's a lot of things where it's like, you can do that, but you're going to be, you know, right now, if you're, if you're going to start a mechanic shop, like you can do that. Um, but that we've mostly solved that problem. Um, like that's right. You can start a small farm. We've mostly solved that problem. So, so just, being willing to accept that fact and being like, okay, so it's, you know, I still might pursue it, but it's either capped or it's like this whole, like the whole scalar world that we're living in thing. I think it's confusing for everybody. Yeah. And there's ways to pull value out. They're not monetary. Like you mentioned a farm. If you have a small farm and you're uh, self-sustained with your family and, and getting enough to get by, that might be a really rewarding existence to not be a part of the commerce train. Yeah. I don't know. I think, I've never done it, but I can see the allure and I can yeah. see that as being a way to, a way to succeed. Well, I think the allure part is the part that I would most like want to like shine a light in and say like, yeah, it might be alluring, 
but you should realize that you might make $21,000 a year. Mm-hmm. Um, and which is kind of great and kind of like, because you're like, well, you don't have to buy food and all these other things. And that might be true. Right. Um, but you might realize that that's actually that you're romanticizing something that's really effing hard, really effing hard. But you also might get enough reward out of working that hard that it, that it gives your life some meaning. It depends on you. You know, there's no one ingredient. Like you look at those people on the, uh, that Alaska show on one of those networks that where it chronicles like five different people living in Alaska in different uh, capacities or different parts of the wilderness where some of them are just like alone hunting moose yeah. with a gun and, and dragging it back to their shack. They built themselves and they love it. You know, Holy shit. Yeah. What a, that's a, that's not even a world that I understand or makes any sense, but I get the allure. I can see the, the, the appeal. Why of, they would make of, the decision. Yeah. I can hundred percent see it. You know, I, it, it looks, looks amazing. I'm just not going to do it. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. It's well, I think maybe as I'm talking this out with you, I'm realizing the thing that I wish, the thing I would push on with people is it's like one, like when there was actually, um, a guy in Boston I met, uh, did you ever have pretty things ale? No. Um, so he was this really successful brewer, like a major brewery in England, uh, met his wife. She was a Harvard researcher and, uh, met her at a beer festival and they got married. Mm. She quit that and they made beer together and he quit his really prestigious, like it was a huge brewery, like one of those. Um, and he was like a big name and, and he, they just made beer together and they would, they, and I was trying to talk about capital and scale and, you know, who I connect with. I love their product. Mm-hmm. And he was like, I've had all of this stuff before and I've had, hundreds and hundreds of employees and he was like and right now i get to make beer and i live in cambridge and i get to um finish and have beer at night with my wife uh-huh. and we like it and we sit on the porch and until it gets dark and that's all i want yeah and was like, there's a lot for that businesses anymore he was like i only have projects he was like so i call this pretty things ale project and he was like i know that i'm going to shut it down in the next five years hmm I mean, they had like, people were trying to distribute them all over the country. And it was like, they had so much crazy demand and he did, they don't, you can't get it anymore. It doesn't exist anymore. He shut it down. That's amazing. And I thought, man, what a, what a cool thing to, to like prep people. Hey, call them projects. Imagine imagine what that feels like to, to know, like there's, there's no pressure, you know, like regardless of how good this goes, I'm done in five, I'm checking out. I I, I can't even wrap my head around that. And I'm going to have to do something new. I'm going to have to do a new thing and I don't know what it is. I might have to get good at something again. I might be bad at something again. I'm going to have to get new customers. Uh, chances are it'll be related. Um, to me, that's, that's setting some better expectations to help you be more successful or it's like, keeps you learning, which keeps you moving yeah, I'm forward. I'm going to have to pivot. This is not my ticket where I'm either like, Oh, I'm, you know, so anyways, that's why I'm sitting on my own yacht. What's your name again? <laughs> um, it's like that you're, and that's okay. It's okay that we're going to have like, you're going to have eight more careers before you, uh, you know, have enough to give up a little bit and tell everybody you retired, but really you just stop making money. Right. Right. That's, okay. that's the beautiful thing about what I've been doing is, uh, a, my industry is it's different every year anyway, but I also chase things that, that interest me. 
So I, I, it's like I start a new business every year. It's radically different. You know, it's, it's, uh, yeah. it's always doing and exploring new parts of the digital world that, that are fascinating to me. And then it's selling clients on um, enabling through technology, whatever I can help make for ha happen for the business. But it's, it's, uh, we don't sell Facebook ads. We don't do Google ads or optimization. Yeah. You know, we don't, we don't, that, there's a place for all of that. It just doesn't interest me at all. So we don't do that. Yeah. We do. Uh, the creative application of digital technologies to increase relationships between the brand and its consumers. That's I want to take the, the distance away from the brand and the people and start to, uh, that's my whole goal mm -hmm. is, I don't know, there's a different answer for all clients and for what their needs are, but I want to create the relationship, the, an actual relationship, yeah. not serving ads and then selling widgets. So that, that keeps me interested. That keeps every project's kind of fun and cool. Yeah. You know? And, and it does, it, it, it keeps that truth of that your job is, you're getting a new job every year. Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Or, otherwise I'd go insane anyway. I have a, I, I, I'm not capable of like a status quo. I, I, uh, my head would pop. Yeah. Not, not saying that's a good thing. It's just that I'm insane. So I have to keep things changing. Yeah. You just, <laughs> you're in touch with the kind of insane that you are. Right. Right. I've accepted it because it's here. So you've hacked it to where that <laughs> that's working as, as for you as it can. Right. So, all right. So I, um, I want to stop here cause I know you have to go and I don't want to drag this yeah. on. It's already been an hour and a half. It goes by really, really fast. So, yeah. um, let's just sign off here and talk about doing a, a next one in a little while. We can talk about maybe where your decision ends up and the road yeah. down there. For sure. For all sure. Right. Yeah. It's fun. All right. One second.